Well, good morning. Good morning, you wonderful, welcoming people. And good morning to all of you who are in the room, obviously, and very, very warm welcome to those of you at Cambridge, I wish I was there too, and at Leicester, which I'd also like to go to, and to all of you watching online, wherever you may find yourself. And I want to welcome you just as warmly as you have very kindly welcomed me. John and I love this church. This is absolutely one of our favorite places on the face of the earth and we enjoy your leaders we enjoy your friendship and we're very honored to be to count ourselves part of you actually come down to it that's what it is we count ourselves a part of you you are just embarking on this amazing series on this is our god and uh, I have to say that for me, they've asked me to talk about a little passage in Isaiah 6, which you will know well. And quite frankly, my lines have fallen in a pleasant place. <clears throat> There's nowhere in the book of Isaiah that I would rather park. And so we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 together. <clears throat> in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Now, this is, of course, an incredibly famous, I imagine very familiar passage, and it's among the most well-known of Isaiah's writings. And he puts it securely in a historical place, which, of course, is a wonderful thing. He adds to its authenticity by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. As with many of the other prophets, such as Zechariah, when we read, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Or Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. And I love it because this is historically grounded. We have a faith that is absolute, actual, and historically grounded. And so it was that in 743 BC, which of course you already knew, Isaiah was given a task by God, and he was told that many would not respond. He was told that the result would be a split in the kingdom, and of course Israel went into captivity 20 years later, and 50 years after Isaiah died, Judah went away too. But in verse 13 of this chapter we read, the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Strange words. Everyone else had been sent away, the land had been forsaken, as God had told Isaiah to warn them. But at the end of the day, a holy seed would remain and would be the stump in the land. 
which is actually what we are, believe it or not. It's fascinating, isn't it, to think that being in the minority is nothing new, people. We've always been in that place. And God's people, the holy seed of his plans, his ambitions, his intentions for the world, are still vested in a group of people that will always be this side of heaven in the minority. So take heart with that very thought as we begin. We love being together. We love the corporate thing. We love it that we are one of so many. And we're worshiping with others around the world in their millions and millions. But still, we are the holy seed and we are the stump in the land. So, what do we see here in these extraordinary verses? First thing, Isaiah glimpsed the greatness of God in a new way. And first of all, he glimpsed God's greatness through his sovereignty. The Hebrew word for Lord in this passage means sovereign. I saw the Lord, I saw the sovereign, seated on a throne, high and exalted. Very much as, of course, John did during his vision on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 4 when he said, Once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. God's sovereignty is absolutely real. It's absolute. The throne is the seat of all authority and power, and the throne on which our new king will be crowned two weeks from now is but a shadow, just a shadow of the throne that is in heaven. And he will only be crowned because the Lord has let that be. So it's a very significant thing, and God is seated, immovable, not going anywhere, on his throne, which is where he's always been and always will be, at the very control room of all things, the very nerve center of the universe, in absolute command, always has been, always is, and always will be, and nothing will change. That's where we dwell. He's seated on the only throne that matters, the only throne that counts for anything. He has not lost the plot. He has not been caught out. He's not been foxed by coronavirus. He's not confounded by the unbelievably awful war that is raging in the very center of our continent. He's not even been taken by surprise by a cost of living crisis, which is hitting us very close to home in our very own beings, which makes believing in his sovereignty absolutely crucial for our well-being. It is who God is. He is sovereign. In the 16th century, Martin Luther was once threatened by a papal envoy who said to him that all his supporters would desert him. And then said the envoy, where will you be then? Luther replied, then as now, in the hands of God. Whatever happens. Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century revivalist, he once wrote, there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine, I love these words, has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty, said Edwards, is what I love to ascribe to God. And then, of course, all my, my favorite of them all, Charles Spurgeon, 19th century, amazing preacher. He said, we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills. It is God upon the throne that we love to preach. 
It is God upon his throne in whom we trust. Sovereignty is a soft pillow for anxious heads. That's your takeaway, people, for the morning. That's the party bag to take home. God's sovereignty is a soft pillow for anxious heads. And so Isaiah glimpsed God's greatness through his sovereignty, but then, of course, he saw, glimpsed the greatness of God through his holiness. He described him high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. The doorposts, the thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Intriguingly, we learn about his robes, his throne, his voice, his attendants, the seraphs, the sounds of their voices, but the Lord himself is not described. But it's in his temple that Isaiah experiences the Lord's glorious presence and his holiness. The seraph thing, I've never quite got the seraphs, but you know, I have been obviously studying the seraphs and I've come up with this and I think it's amazing. Three of the eight verses that we just read are all about the seraphs and their activity. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, two they were flying, calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy. And at the sound of their voices, everything shook and the place was filled with smoke. I mean, these were action men. The seraphs were essentially angelic, heavenly beings. They were literally servants at the bidding of a seated master. The word literally means burning ones. And it's only used in that way in this passage in the scriptures. And what they were, they, had, they were doing what our grandchildren called doing words. So what were they doing? Interestingly, they covered their eyes but not their ears because they needed to be able to focus on what the Lord was saying. And then, rather than looking at his appearance, they were just listening out. And then might they be covering their feet because their intention was only to go where the Lord told them to go. They weren't, as it were, free agents. They were at the Lord's bidding and they were calling to one another across the courts of heaven. We once went to St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, one of the most glorious buildings. And there was a choir um, singing and they were in the galleries and they were singing across this extraordinary space about the greatness of the Lord. And it felt like a, a little sort of picture of what heaven would be. All of them caught up, calling, calling to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is full of his glory over and over and over again, calling out to each other. And it's all about his holiness. Holiness is the central revelation of God and who he is, and it's captured in the cry of these angelic beings. So what does the word mean? It's frequently used, I'm sure you've heard, as a swear word. Holy smoke, holy cow, and others, of course, modesty forbids. Awful things. But it's also used as insult. You holy Joe, you. You're just part of those holier-than-thou people that meet together on a Sunday morning, meant to be disparaging and rude. But actually, isn't it interesting, the true meaning is sacred, set apart, separate from. And holy, as it's used in the Bible here, is of the supernatural. It speaks of the supernatural, the perfection and the purity of our God. And interestingly, you and I call God Father, as Jesus told us we could, but Jesus used to call him Holy Father. 
That was the one adjective that Jesus ascribed to his Father, Holy Father. There were occasions in which the holiness of God was so offended, so sinned against, and his anger became so aggrieved and affronted that it reached boiling point and spilt over, for example, into judgment with the flood, when only Noah and his boatload remained as that tiny seed in the land. And then, of course, there was Sodom, and there was Gomorrah, and there was Babylon, when God acted in judgment against the unholiness of his world. And it's a deep, significant thing that holy, holy, holy is used three times across the courts of heaven. Holiness being the supreme truth about God, it is in itself so beyond explaining or analyzing that they invented, as it were, a super superlative to try and explain. And in Hebrew, repetition is used to express totality, hugeness, importance. And interestingly, the three words that repeat them, are repeated here by the seraphs are not love, 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 they're not gracious, gracious, gracious. They're not even mercy, mercy, mercy. They are holy, holy, holy. And so Isaiah glimpsed the greatness of God in his sovereignty. He saw it in his holiness, but he saw it too through their worship. Little wonder that all that they saw and heard led these seraphs to worship. Little wonder the doorposts of the thresholds shook. Little wonder that the whole temple was filled with smoke, which of course is always representative of the presence of God in the scriptures. Such an experience of God's greatness can only lead to worship. Exactly as in Revelation 4 and 5, and many of the songs we sang this morning, you realize, referred to those. The Lord was seated on the throne, the Lion of Judah had triumphed, the Lamb that was slain was at the very center. And just as John on Patmos or Isaiah in this throne room, what else could you do but fall on your faces, which is where we will finish, I'm pretty sure. And in Revelation, we read, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and they have their being. And then finally they sang to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And have you ever noticed, and I'm sure Simon and his worship team have, that when we sing of the attributes of our God like that, the Spirit of God comes, never fails to. He loves it that we sing about the Lord in that way. And have you noticed that some of the songs that we sing, understandably, are about us and how awful we feel and what rotters we are? I mean, there's a bit of that around, quite honestly, which I find a little tiresome, because honestly, I don't need to be told I'm a rotter, and I don't need to be told that I'm feeling wobbly. I need to have my eyes raised to heaven, people. I need to worship at the throne. We need to do that. We need to forget how we are. It's not about us. Worship sets are not about us, people. They're about him. And that's where we long to be. And that's what I think he's encouraging us to do. It was a wonderful thing. And do you worry, wonder that the temple was filled and indeed our bodies are filled. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul told us so. And they are, which is why our very physical beings need to do something 
either throw up our hands or fall on our faces or clap or do anything that expresses what's in there because the Spirit of God resonates with us that we are indeed his children and we long, long to worship him. We were created to worship our God. The words of the Westminster Confession, of course, devised by Presbyterians in the 17th century, what is man's chief end, was the question. Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Which is why we enjoy our worship. And worshiping corporately, physically, together, in one place, in a room like this, or if you're in Cambridge or in Leicester, or in some little group together with others, worshiping, just the physical presence of being with people cannot be replaced by anything. I mean, I'm very high on my earbuds and my iPad and my whatever, and worship around the fields and sing and so forth, but there's nothing, nothing like this, honestly. And so, in this passage, Isaiah glimpsed the greatness of God in a new way. Secondly, he received the blessing of God in a new way. And for Isaiah, the whole of this experience was overwhelming. He was filled with awe in the, revel in the presence of God and in the immediacy, as it were, of his holiness. And of course, it led to his feeling, unsurprisingly, unworthy and grubby. Woe is me, he said, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Straight after John and I got married, 45 years and three weeks ago, not bad, eh? Going, going very strong. We went to work in a parish in the west of England, and uh, our vicar, John and Diana Collins, they were amazing, amazing people. And they used to tell the story of moving into the vicarage just before we arrived, and it was a bit of a dump at the time. So they painted the whole place white, brilliant, brilliant white. And then, of course, the, as these things do, the boiler broke down, so they called a plumber, and the plumber turned up on the doorstep, and John went to the door and said, him, do come in, please do come in. And the plumber just looked at this brilliant white hall, and his eyes went large. He said, I can't come in there. He said, my overalls are far too dirty. And it's like Isaiah in the presence, the brilliant white of God's presence exposed the dirtiness of all else because God cannot tolerate the presence of sin. And isn't it interesting how that word, the sin word, sets the world's teeth on edge. It will not use it. And even we, can find our way around it. We have faults, we have weaknesses, we have shortcomings, we make mistakes. No, people, we sin. That's what we do. This side of heaven, we will. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because people must substitute other things, other realities. If you knew how deeply dysfunctional my family was, if you only knew how hard my background was growing up, if I'd only had more money or more friends or more privileges, if only I'd been better educated, if only I was married, if only I wasn't. I mean, all the excuses in the world get made. People are even beginning to challenge. We're in weird days. People are beginning to challenge the way in which God chose to create them. Some are seeking to shortchange and even abort the very process of creation. Others are trying to engineer death itself. Those are the crazy days we live in, people. 
So in one sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Men and women have always done what is right in their own eyes. And yet, he who sits on the throne of the universe at the nerve center of all creation, he has numbered the hairs on my head and he has counted the days of my life. That's how in control he is. And the ultimate of sin, of course, is not to acknowledge that, not to recognize that reality, to flick our fingers in his face. Unthinkable to us, unthinkable. But that's where most of the world lives. So really, I think sin is sin, and we would do well to call it out, to recognize it for what it is, anything alien to the holiness and the goodness of God that cannot be tolerated by him. Paul was very clear. He described himself as the chief among sinners, and he asserted unequivocally in Romans, he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And isn't it interesting, did you know, I rather hope you didn't, that a sinner, technically speaking, in the Middle Ages, was an arrow that fell short of a target. Think Robin Hood, okay? Now, interestingly, we have all fallen short of the target. You may be an axe murderer, you may be a bank robber, you may simply be an inveterate gossip. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God to one degree or another. Some have fallen miles short, Others have come closer to the target. No one has hit it. But, but, one of the seraphs flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's an incredible picture of cleansing, of guilt being taken away, sin atoned for. Fascinating that the sins over which Isaiah was most immediately convicted were sins of the lips. Isn't that intriguing? I'm a man of unclean lips, he said. And then, of course, he realized that that's our proclivity, that's our predisposition. We are part of a people of unclean lips. And what do you think he had in mind? Gossip, backbiting, sarcasm, grumbling, silly talk or swearing. Do you know, interesting, when I was, came to Jesus, almost 50 years ago now, the one thing, I was a student, the thing that changed overnight, I mean, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a major sinner, I was, you know, a lot of little stuff, not a big one, but I was, you know, I was just me, but I swore like a trooper, swore like a trooper, can you believe it? I hope you can't. But I did. I swore I could do it in Welsh. My mother was Welsh, and I, we, she swore in Welsh. So I was, I was bilingual, swearer. <laughs> but, but you know, the one thing that changed overnight was that. Never said another naughty word. Isn't that intriguing? So much so that my mother, who, as I say, swore in Welsh, she thought I'd become extremely dull. She said, Eleanor, you've lost your sense of humor. I think she meant you don't swear anymore. But isn't it interesting how significant that is? And so there followed this symbolic assurance of forgiveness as the seraph touched Isaiah's lips. God is very precise. He will often convict us in that very area of our greatest need and minister to us at that point. Woe is me moments must be taken seriously. And of course, as well as symbolic, the words of the seraph were prophetic. Your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Notice the word. A price had to be paid, justice had to be satisfied. 
The repercussions of sin had to be seared, burnt away in the fire from the altar itself. And the altar here in the temple was, of course, a foreshadowing, a prefiguring, a prophetic looking forward to that other place of sacrifice. Not so much, not so much a stone altar as a wooden cross, where the sins of those who turn to him are forgiven. Guilt is forgiven and sin atoned for. And we just meditated, we referred to it in the worship again, on the profound events of Good Friday. Jesus' torture and death, his taking of our sins on himself. And haven't we just rejoiced with the deeper sense of relief at the resurrection and the triumph of Easter Day. Paul wrote to the Romans, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We have been justified through our faith. I was taught as a young believer, justified is just as if I'd never sinned. Clever, hey? Just as if I'd never sinned. I have been forgiven, set free, and my sin atoned for. Achieved at the cross and secured at the resurrection. And so Isaiah glimpsed God's greatness in this amazing way. He received his blessing in a new way. And finally, of course, he committed himself to God's purposes in a new way. Then he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Little wonder. Isaiah had experienced a massive shift of the tectonic plates of his life. And now he'd heard not just the voice of the seraphs, he heard the voice of God himself. Awesome, one imagines, terrifying. And through the very question that God asked, we get an insight into God's heart. Because his heart is for men and women. And the extraordinary realization is that though he could have saved the world, he could have done anything he wanted, from his throne, he chose out of his goodness to involve us. He gave us the ultimate dignity of being partners with him in the work that he set himself to save this world, to save our generation, to save our cities, to save our areas of influence, to save the people we work with, the schools we're a part of, the workshops in which we labor, the wards, the buses, wherever it is that you live and work and have your being. God wants to use us where we are to make way, make known his ways on the face of the earth. There was a 19th century American clergyman once said, the assurance of forgiveness, which of course Isaiah had just received, produces its usual effect of readiness to do God's will. Think St. Paul converted on the Damascus Road and then change, of, change history. Think St. Paul, think John Newton, the notorious slave drunkard um, trader. Think the Cornish tin miner. You heard of Billy Bray, who was an absolutely inveterate drunker, womanizer, got gloriously converted, would not stop talking about it across Cornwall, and famously said, if they shut me in a barrel, I'll shout glory through the bunghole. I mean, he was that saved, that saved. And just think of yourself. Think of what you've been saved from. Think of what you've been saved for. So I'd love to encourage you, men and women of the Kingsgate community, wherever you find yourselves this morning, I would love to encourage you.
to ask the question. First of all, you say, tell him. Tell him, here I am. And then ask the question, what would you like me to do? What would you like me to do, Lord? Here I am. Where do you want me to go? What would you like me to say? To whom would you like to say it? Might it be time to step up to a new challenge? Might it be time to set up to a new, and you, you saw these wonderful people talking about the youth or some of the wonderful things that you had on your Kingsgate News. Might it be time to step up to a new role, a new place on a team, a new, oh, a new level of leadership? God is always calling us on to the next thing. Might it be that you um, want to join a team? Might it want be that you want to give more of your time, your energy, your money? That's the great test. And very particularly and finally, there's one thing I felt strongly this week I wanted to say to you, to encourage you to be oh so grateful. So grateful, people, that this is true. That what Isaiah saw in the year that King Uzziah died is absolutely true. God is sovereign. He is in control. God is holy. He's not to be trifled with. God is pure and beautiful and wonderful. God has taken every possible action to provide for our salvation by sacrificing his boy, his Jesus. And it's all for us, and it's all for free, and it's all amazing. And one of my favorite quotes which has preceded me, it, words of Shakespeare's words put into the mouth of Henry IV, Lord, this was his prayer, lend me a heart replete with thankfulness. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would do that for us. Lord, I invite you by your Holy Spirit to come upon this precious people. I invite you to do the most wonderful things in Cambridge and in Leicester, and the most wonderful things wherever people are listening to this and reading this scripture and sensing and experiencing and resonating in their spirits that the Holy Spirit is at work. And Lord, would you give us a deep, deep sense of gratitude as we fall on our faces and worship at your feet. And the people of Kingsgate said, Amen. Amen.